As we've been walking through the book of Romans, looking at the depth of human sin and depravity, hopefully what that does is bubble up something in your heart of being all the more grateful to God as a Savior who sent us Jesus to redeem us. We've been looking at the beginning of Romans. Uh, we're on to chapter 2, verse 17, 217, going on to 3.8. We've looked at this sweeping picture of human depravity. The sweeping picture of human depravity. He's talked about idolatry and sexual immorality. He's talked about how religion and, and morality and uh, even our response to our conscience is not enough to actually bring about salvation. And you can imagine that for many people who are hearing this, and maybe some even today would say, but surely, surely Pastor Rick, or surely Paul, um, the Jewish people are different. They're in a better place than the rest of all humanity. They're Israel, right? See, some have argued that the Jewish people, um, and I'm sure Mitch, you've come across this, they get the golden ticket. Just by being born, born Jewish, you get to go to heaven, right? It doesn't matter what you do. You're Jewish, you go to heaven in the end, right? <laughs> Some people sort of look at it that way. Um, of course, if that was true, then why would Jesus need to come? If there was any other means to be saved, simply obeying the Torah or its rituals and ceremonies, then why would God sacrifice what is most dearest to him, his own son. The gospel is necessary for all people, Jew and Gentile. But I want us to, as we look at this passage in 2.17 and onward, I want us to think about what we all can learn from the Jewish people and how they also are in need of a savior. Um, What can we learn in our own relationship to the gospel? Chapter 2, verse 17, we're going to go on to 3. Eight. We read this. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? 
But what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and study and application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going. All people, Jew and Gentile, are sinners in need of a Savior. Uh, Instructing the law, the Torah, does not save us, 17 to 24. Circumcision and ceremony does not save us. Uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 3, being Jewish, though a blessing, does not save us. And finally, 5 through 8, displaying God's glory does not save us. That's where we're going. So again, looking at this argument in the beginning of Romans that nothing can save us, that we are under the wrath and judgment of God outside of Christ, and why then we need a Savior. But first, instructing the law does not save us. By the law, again, he means here the Torah, and really not necessarily the entirety of the Torah, because the Torah you know, has things about the sacrificial system for forgiveness of our sins, promises of the coming Messiah, stories about Israel's history. Really, what he's probably focusing on are the moral aspects of the Torah, the Ten Commandments, for example, and other commands, including perhaps the ceremonial aspects of the law, the Torah. And he says, if you call yourself a Jew, those who are ethnically Jewish, or if you are a proselyte to Judaism, um, they did allow people to convert to Judaism, and if you were a proselyte, full-blown proselyte, which means you had undergone circumcision and uh, were baptized as a form of conversion, you were considered Jewish fully as well. And then he lists sort of stipulations that any Jewish person would recognize. One, first, are five that they've received, and then five that they're called to do. So any Jewish person would say, hey, if you are Jewish, then you rely on the law. You boast in God. You know the will of God. You approve what is excellent, meaning, of course, his word. You're one who has been instructed in the law. If that's you, and in addition to that, you are called to be a guide to the blind, be a light to those in darkness, instruct those who are foolish, be a teacher of children, and by that he doesn't mean literal little kids, he means those who are sort of immature and don't understand God, and you have the law that embodies the truth. In other words, if you're Jewish, if you're really Jewish, he says, you teach others, but do you teach yourself? And then he begins to look more closely at the law, and specifically some of the Ten Commandments. You who command, who teach the commandment not to steal. Do you steal? You teach the commandment not to commit adultery. Does adultery exist in Israel? 
You who command not to uh, be an idolater. You look at the history of Israel when it comes to idolatry. Actually, he says, do you rob temples? Perhaps a reference to not paying the temple tax. You know, Malachi says those who don't tithe are robbing God. Or he may refer to robbing pagan temples here. You boast in the law, but you break the law. <laughs> and he quotes from Isaiah 52. Israel was called to be a light to all the nations. Did they succeed? According to Isaiah, prophesying from the Lord? No, God's name is blasphemed among the nations because of you. Now keep this few things in context here. Paul is Jewish. Okay, so he was a Pharisee. He was trained and raised up in the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised, raised as a Jew his entire life. And he says, I would wish more than anything else that the Jewish people would come to know their Messiah. Actually, Paul says, would that I myself would even be cursed, damned to hell if that would save my own people. But understand that, Paul, this is sort of an insider conversation. Paul is Jewish, speaking to the Jewish people. The congregation in Rome would be Jew and Gentile. Uh, The Jews were kicked out of Rome at a previous time, but this is late enough here by the first century in which many Jews had returned to Rome. Many of them, of course, have come to know Jesus as Messiah. They would have been part of the church. Also keep in mind, he just blasted the Gentiles for two chapters. Okay, So he is not picking on Israel in any sense. This is also written before church history, uh, before the Crusades, before the Holocaust, before the horrible crimes of anti-Semitism. I thought uh, Mitch Foreman did a sermon a few, what, about a month ago, uh, just outlining all the difficulties in reaching Jewish people because of the atrocities that Christians have done, quote-unquote Christians have done against Jews over the years. This is before all that. But when you boil down what he's saying here, it's true. If you read the Old Testament, what is God's assessment of Israel? They have failed to bring the light to the nations. They have failed to be truly faithful. They are in need of God's grace and forgiveness. Just the same. This is a reminder to us all, by the way. Um, Knowing the Ten Commandments. How many think you could, I'm not going to ask you to do it, but how many think you could recite all Ten Commandments? All right, some could, all right? Um, Even if you can't say, I can't recite all Ten Commandments, maybe you could recite Jesus' summary of the whole of the Torah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We can even memorize lengthy sections of the Bible. But do you live it? It's one thing to say, I have mastered the Bible. But have you been mastered by the Bible? That's the real question. It's not how much do you know in your head. Are you actually living it out? Sadly, I think many churches, interestingly enough, both on both sides, the fundamentalist side on the far right, the liberal side on the far left, end up ultimately being legalistic, teaching mere morality. All that matters is that you don't dance or smoke or chew, as they say, right? Or go with girls who do. That's the fundamentalist side. And on the other side, all that matters is social justice and making sure we have a better world. They end up losing the gospel on both sides. There's a saying about why Southern Baptists are against uh, uh, dancing. I'm sorry, why they're, <laughs> I blew the joke. Uh, there's a joke about why they're against adultery, and the answer is because they're afraid it might lead to dancing. 
Uh, so they got it backwards, right, is the idea. They, they, they make a big deal about nothing. If you're here and maybe you're watching online and you still think you can be good enough. Now, I'm a good enough person. I've done enough good in my life. I, I, I've, I've, I'm better than my next door neighbor. God will accept me as I am. Israel tried it for millennia. Thousands of years. And God's assessment is they failed. You've never used the Lord's name in vain. You've never told a lie. You've never coveted what doesn't belong to you. You've broken the law. Once again, morality, the law here, shows us what is straight, what is right, what is good. And what that does ultimately is help us to recognize that our lives are crooked that we need a savior. What about circumcision? What about circumcision? You might be saying, why is he making such a big deal about circumcision? Look at 25 through 29. What about circumcision? Understand that circumcision was a central sort of ritual. Um, the, the major ceremony, the major sort of sign of the Jewish people. It goes back literally thousands of years before Jesus, all the way back to Abraham, Abraham, who was sort of a nomadic, almost like a sheik out there in the Middle East, who begins by God gives him the covenant of circumcision. As an older man, he begins to circumcise his sons. Um, Also then when it comes to Moses, it becomes part encapsulated in the very Torah. And even today, of course, every Jewish male is called to be circumcised. In fact, there's a job for someone who actually does this, what do they call them? Anyone know? A moil. Kina said it to me. Of course she knows, Sarah, right? So there are those who are called to actually do that. I would, that'd be one of my lowest, least favorite jobs ever. Can you imagine? My job is to circumcise little boys. I just would hate to do that job. But it is part of the very central culture of being Jewish. And what Paul says here is it has value if you obey the law. But if you don't obey the law you break it, then it has no value. Because what is circumcision? It's the sign that you are under the Torah. It's the sign that you are under the law. It's like a badge. Right? Imagine you are, your, your goal in life is to be in the FBI. You train, you go to school, you do all the internships and all that, and eventually you get a badge. You are now an FBI agent. That's what sort of a circumcision is. It's that final statement that I truly am part of God's people. I am under the Torah. I am under the law. Well, if you don't follow the Torah, then what good is the sign that you're under the Torah? In fact, he says here, if those who are uncircumcised obey the Torah, they do a better job obeying the Torah, it ultimately condemns you as if you weren't circumcised to begin with. If you're, an, if you're someone who's uh, an excellent FBI agent, but you lost your badge, you're still a better FBI agent than someone who has a badge and doesn't, right? It's just the badge that says that you, are, you belong, here, circumcision, that you belong under the Torah. And he uses that uh, reference there, that being Jewish is not merely an outward physical thing. It's not merely about a physical act. It's about the heart. It's about God's spirit. God praises those who truly seek his heart. By the way, that isn't, sometimes that's used to say, well, that's in the Old Testament. God called them to just some physical sign. In the New Testament, it's all spiritualized. No, that's always been God's plan. 
Circumcision was never meant to be merely an outward thing. Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Jeremiah 4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. All the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. The calling all along, of course, was never to make it all about a mere outward symbol. The calling all along was to truly, from the heart, obey the Lord. But ceremonies... Ceremonies won't save us. Um, by the way, circumcision today, uh, nothing wrong with being circumcised. Uh, people do it for supposed hygienic reasons or for personal reasons, but it has no spiritual value. But I think there are connections to other things that we as Christians today make such a big deal about, things like baptism, for example. Now, baptism is a biblical thing. We're called to be baptized, but baptism does not save us. John Stott said, what Paul writes here about circumcision and being a Jew could also be said about baptism and being a Christian. The real Christian, like the real Jew, is one inwardly, and true, true baptism, like true circumcision, is in the heart and by the Spirit. We are not saved by baptism. Baptism does not wipe away some original sin. Simply going into the tub and coming out of it as a powerful symbol of our faith does absolutely nothing to save and redeem your eternal soul. For that, we need something infinitely greater and stronger and more powerful. We need the Lord Jesus. Style of church liturgy doesn't save you. You know, today it's whatever's new and contemporary, that's what's spiritual and good. For others, it's vice versa, right? No, all that stuff is unfaithful. It doesn't really matter. All that we should do is be singing hymns and you know, saying the liturgy. Yes, yeah, ceremonies have a place. In fact, ceremonies are necessary. <laughs> um, whenever a church says we have to do baptism, there's a way you have to do it. Whatever the way you do it is, that ends up becoming your ceremony. Uh, we had this whole discussion before about communion, right? What is the right way to do communion? Uh, well, there isn't any right way, but you have to find some way to do it. Some people would say, uh, you should take communion standing up. You should walk to the front, grab the bread, grab the cup, and do it. Other people say, no, you should take communion sitting down, right? Sitting down in your chair and more reflective, as if that's the right way to do it. Other people say we should lay down. (laughs) How many people think any way is okay except laying down? Guess what? You know how Jesus took communion? Laying down. (laughs) Their tables were on the ground and they literally laid down. And that's how he took communion to begin with. There is no right way to take communion, but you've got to find some way to do it. Ceremonies won't save you. No ritual, no religious practice, no pilgrimage can even come close to redeeming us. Um... If you get a chance to go to Israel, go to Israel. (laughs) It's beautiful. You will learn so much. You'll see the Bible comes to life. Uh, You'll go to the places that the Bible describes. You'll see parts of the temple. You'll get to perhaps go on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. But you don't need to go to Israel to be saved. 
We get baptized as a sign, as an outward sign of our union with Christ. We take communion as an outward sign of our faith in the Lord Jesus and his body broken and his blood shed. It doesn't save us. It symbolizes what does save us. People will say, well, my mom went to church every day. (laughs) My grandmother was so religious. My grandpa was a pastor. None of that. No lineage, no genealogy saves you. I went to CCD as a kid. I was confirmed. He received last rites on his deathbed. He had a Bible degree. He went forward at an altar call when he was 12. None of that saves you. I've heard this one a number of times. He suffered so much in his lifetime, he must be in heaven. (laughs) I'm not sure how that works. If you suffer a lot, you automatically get a free pass to heaven. I'm not sure where that mentality comes from. No ceremony, no ritual can even come close to dealing with the sin problem that we are facing. We need a savior. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, being Jewish, though it's a blessing, doesn't save us. So we ask the, the question, well, what advantage then is there in being Jewish? If being, having the law and instructing the law can't save us, if being circumcised, the central ceremony of Judaism can't save us, what is the actual advantage in being Jewish? Is there any value in circumcision? And his answer is yes, much, much in every way. What is it? He says they are entrusted, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God, the very word of God. They have the Torah, the prophets, the wisdom literature, the Psalms. They're the keepers of God's word for centuries. You know why we still have the scriptures today, particularly the Hebrew scriptures? Because of the Masoretes. The Masoretes were a group of rabbis who so cautiously, reverently, carefully oversaw the scriptures for centuries so that we could have it today. Uh, you know, there, there's no vowels in the Hebrew language. By the way, I remember taking Hebrew in seminary. Usually if you go to seminary to be a pastor, you've got to take Hebrew. Uh, most people say that's the low point, <laughs> the most difficult class. Uh, it's where maybe you end up uh, failing a class for the first time in your life <laughs> is when you start trying to learn Hebrew. It's not an easy language. In fact, when you look at it, there's the consonants, and then there's a bunch of little dots and lines all over the place. Those are the vowels. The Masoretes came up with that vowel system. Before that, it was memorized for centuries and centuries. Uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls were found not all that long ago, one of the greatest archaeological finds in history. And uh, it was found by a group of Bedouin shepherds. And they found these old scrolls in some cave out in the middle of the desert. They didn't know what to do with them, uh, so they took them to the market to sell them. Um, they had no idea what they had. Uh, what they, they offered them to one person who, said, who returned them and said, no, these are worthless. <laughs> Later on, they ended up selling them for, um, uh, three of them, for seven Jordanian pounds, which comes to about $28 at the time. Later on, they were discovered to be dating back to the first and second century And like I said, one of the greatest archaeological finds in history. (laughs) And you know what happened is they studied these first century Hebrew scriptures. They compared them to what the Masoretes had given us hundreds and hundreds of years later. They were almost identical because of the amazing caution and care of the Jewish people in bringing the scripture to us. Theirs 
of the very words of God. Paul says some of, if some of them are unfaithful, will their lack of faithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And here Paul gives the strongest negation possible in the Greek language. Literally, it's meganoito, but it's translated at least by the ESV as by no means. May it never even come to mind that God would be unfaithful to his people. God loves Israel even when they've been unfaithful. If you read the Old Testament scriptures, what you will see is, yes, Israel fails the Lord. But yes, God loves his people. Let God be true in every man a liar, he says. Psalm 51 is, is David's cry out to God of repentance. And that's where he quotes from, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God is faithful even when his people fail and sin against them. Friends, we owe Israel an immense debt. Jesus, the Messiah, was Jewish. <laughs> Virtually his entire life is lived in Israel. All of the 12 apostles are Jewish. Paul, the apostle, is Jewish. The leader of the early church, James, is Jewish. In fact, again, the Torah is far more than just giving us that standard of morality. The promises of the Messiah fill the Old Testament scriptures. Stories of God's people. In fact, even Moses said God would raise up a prophet like me. The whole sacrificial system comes out of Israel, pointing to our need of a sacrificial substitutionary atonement that comes in Jesus Christ. Many, many Jewish people trusting in God's faithfulness over the years and the sacrificial system and the grace of God are going to be with us in glory. But what can we learn from this? No ethnicity, no race can save us. The gospel affects diverse ethnicities all throughout the world. Being born Jewish or any other race or ethnicity does not give us the golden ticket to glory. We need something far greater. We need a savior. Before we move on, I would just say this. To study the Old Testament, read it. It's filled with not only the law, but promises and types that foreshadow the coming of Jesus. In fact, that idea of the Judeo-Christian ethic Uh, What we get from the Old Testament and into the New Testament has shaped the world. Our view of marriage and its permanence, the whole legal system here in the United States is based on the Judeo-Christian ethic. Our care for the poor, that all people are made in the image of God, the imago dia. That whole reality comes out of what we read in the scriptures. And let me just add this note before we move on to the last section. Love your Jewish neighbors. (laughs) Love them, care for them, and Try to lead them to know the Savior. Uh, we support Chosen People Ministries, um, which uh, Mitch Foreman is the vice president of. That sets is its entire goal of how do we love and reach the Jewish people with their Messiah and our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It does them no good. It does no good to say to someone who is Jewish, you get a free pass. You don't have to believe in Jesus. You get to go to heaven. You are taking from them the very thing that would save them, that has saved you. Be gentle, be wise, but let them know that God has sent a Savior for them and for me and for you. Five through eight, uh, displaying God's glory doesn't save us. He is sort of preempting a dangerous response to what he's saying. 
um, what he says, he asks sort of in a, what again I mentioned before, a diatribe uh, style, whereas if the person is sitting in front of him having a debate, but he says here, well, what if our, if our unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God, that's what happened with Israel, right? Their sinfulness showed how faithful God was, then wouldn't God be wrong to judge us? Like, we're just playing a role here. This is our role. Just like Israel played, that's what we play. Um, and he even says here, I'm speaking in a human way. <laughs> um, those who are accused, uh, some have accused Paul of saying these things. He would never speak this way. And his response is, again, by no means. Absolutely not. Meganoito, how could God judge the world if that was the case? If, if our lie, our sin gives God glory that does not excuse our sin and it does not make us innocent and then he says here perhaps the worst uh, wouldn't this mean that if we do more evil that shows God's glory all the more right so it's good if we do evil because ultimately that shows how merciful and loving and faithful God is and Paul's only response is their condemnation is just (laughs) that mentality is the heart of an unbeliever and a rebel trying to prevent again preempt a a dangerous sort of thinking here is if Israel since Israel is just sort of a cog in the wheel of God's plan they were needed to show the failure of the law to save and in the same sense maybe all of us are doing the same thing we're just playing the role of a sinner so God can show his glory so therefore maybe sin is actually kind of good that's kind of what he's arguing against it's a sort of anti-nomianism that we are just the foil of God's glory. And so in the end, maybe we should even be thankful for our sin because it glorifies God. In that viewpoint, the law is seen as evil. Morality becomes our enemy. Good is really bad. Meganoito, may it never be. Be careful of this. You, say, you might say, do people really talk like that, Pastor Rick? Yes. Yes. I've talked to a number of Christians who talk that way, and it is foolish. I've even had people say the extreme thing he said here. You know, it's hard for me not to sin all the more because I know God's going to forgive me. If legalism is a problem on one side, antinomianism is a problem on the other, and it has pestered God's church for hundreds of years. Our sin should grieve us. The sins of our past are not something we should gloat in. Our sin today is not something to make light of. It should lead us to repentance. We don't hide behind God's will and his glory and his sovereignty. That doesn't make us innocent. We are in need of a savior. All people, Jew and Gentile, are sinners in need of a savior. The Torah, circumcision, ethnicity, it does not excuse us. We are still under the wrath of God. You might be saying at this point, Pastor Rick, I think we've had enough of this sin and wrath talk. <laughs> Are we ever going to get to the gospel? Yes, soon, soon, okay? Um, actually, there's one more section uh, on depravity, and then the light breaks in. And what Paul is doing us is he's taking us layer by layer by layer, deeper into a recognition of our need and our desperation before God until he gets to chapter 3, verse 21, which we're not covering today, but Lord willing, next week. But now, a righteousness from God has been revealed. Friends, this Thanksgiving, I hope in some ways, this just refreshes 
our gratitude for the gospel. This little story that Jesus, about Jesus' life. Jesus, one day, was having dinner at a Pharisee's house named Simon, and Simon didn't even really want Jesus there. But it was his job, his role as sort of the Pharisee of the town to invite the traveling preacher. So he invites Jesus over for dinner, but he doesn't do anything to show that he's really happy to have him there. (laughs) Doesn't wash his feet, doesn't anoint his head with oil, doesn't kiss him on the cheek, doesn't do anything that you're supposed to do to welcome sort of a, a traveling rabbi. And while they're having dinner, a woman comes in who is the local sinner, a woman who is clearly a prostitute, and she falls down at Jesus' feet in front of everyone. By the way, there would be people, sort of all the dignitaries of that town, sort of having dinner around the table. And then you'd have people who are visiting around the sides. So you could actually not eat the dinner, but come to the dinner and sit around the sides. But she would be an outcast, not welcome there at all. She charges right into the middle of the dinner, falls at Jesus' feet, and begins to kiss them with her tears wiping his feet. And all the people there, including Simon, are saying, doesn't Jesus know what kind of woman this is? He must not know much. He must be kind of dumb, because if he is, he would tell her to get out of here. This is an embarrassment. This is a shock. And Jesus says to Simon, there were two men. One was forgiven a great debt, and one was forgiven a little. Which one will love more? And even Simon has to say, the one who was forgiven much. And Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Friends, the reality is all of us have sinned much. The difference between sinning much and sinning little is our perspective. How well do we see and know our own sin? And as we peel away the layers of our sinful depravity here and see the depth of our sin, we see the abundance of the love of our Savior. We have been forgiven much. Let's love and be grateful. Much. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for these week-by-week reminders now of how desperate we were and are without Jesus. Let nothing in this world, no ceremony, no obedience to the law on our own side here, no ritual, no pilgrimage, nothing we do, no ethnicity, no race, nothing will save us except for the Lord Jesus Christ who's came, who has come, who's died in the place of sinners, who is resurrected and conquering the grave and through faith has made us his own in this life and unto eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.